0: John chapter 1, verses 19-51. through 51. So follow along with me as I read. And this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask Him, Who are You? He confessed, and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked Him, What then? Are You Elijah? And He said, I am not. Are You the prophet? And He answered, No. So they said to him, Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. So they asked him, Then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day he saw Jesus coming towards him and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he whom I said... And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. The next day again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following, and he said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, "'Come, and you will see.' So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, "'We have found the Messiah,' which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, "'So you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas,' which means Peter." of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathaniel said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathaniel answered to him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. And Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree. Do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. This is God's Word. Let us pray. Father, we are thankful for Your Word. We are thankful for the opportunity to hear it read this morning. We are thankful for the opportunity to be able to open up our Scriptures and to look into it ourselves. Lord, it is Your grace and Your goodness that has given this revelation to us. And I pray today that You would allow us to explore the depths of what You have here and that You would give me grace and ability to do so faithfully. Lord, to do so clearly. Lord, it is Your Word that we seek to know this morning. It is Your face that we seek to view. It is You that we come to to hear from and so Lord I pray that you will use the feeble words that I speak this morning as a means of giving your grace to your people. Lord not only do we pray this for ourselves but we pray this for First Baptist Church in Bowling Brook and Vaughn Sanders. Lord I thank you for the pleasure of knowing him and studying with him at the Fellowship of the Word at Ridgewood and I pray that you would use their time this morning as they gather together hear from you to experience the grace that only comes through your word lord we pray for gospel hope church in atlanta we pray for pastor ryan and and we thank you so much for the ministry that he had here and now the ministry that he has there as they look forward to uh, celebrating their second year as a church coming up in easter that you would just give them a a wonderful day of around your word fellowshipping together as your people Lord, we ask that You would also bless Harvest Bible Chapel here in Joliet and Eric Postula. Lord, we just pray that You would give grace as Your Word is preached and presented today. Lord, that these these churches would experience the goodness that comes from seeing and hearing from You. And I pray that we too would experience that goodness. Lord, You are good and You do good. May we see it today. In Jesus' name we pray amen today we're continuing our series in the gospel of john so we just started it last week so if you weren't here last week you haven't missed out on too much yet so today we are looking at the rest of chapter one and the title of the series is proclaiming jesus in the gospel of john and john's gospel really is all about proclaiming jesus to its readers John's desire is that we would see Jesus, and in seeing Him, we would believe. It's all about seeing the glory of Jesus. As we looked at last week in verse 14, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. The glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace. And truth. And this morning, as we work through the rest of this chapter, we are going to be looking at that glory. This second half points us to the glory of Jesus Christ. As John uh, plans to unpack all of all of this throughout his gospel, he he tightens in the focus here on Jesus Christ, and then our response to Jesus Christ. So this gospel calls us to see and to believe, to follow and proclaim Jesus. And so this morning. My main point is this, we proclaim Jesus because in seeing His glory, we can humbly see ourselves as God's servants. We proclaim Jesus because in seeing His glory, we can humbly see ourselves as God's servants. So as we walk through this, I have two points that we're going to be looking at. The first one there, because in seeing His glory. So we're going to go through this chapter and really look at some of the aspects in which John is highlighting the glory of Jesus Christ. And he does that in a, in a number of ways. And we're going to look at two. We're going to focus on the titles of glory that are given here in this second half of John chapter 1. And we're also going to look at the way John, the author here, describes the activity connected to Jesus Christ. But then, in turn, we're also going to go back through, this, through the second half of this chapter and look at how we should respond. How seeing ourselves in light of the glory of Jesus Christ should change us. It should bring us, as I say here, humility. And should cause us to see how we are God's servants. So let's start with that first point. Seeing the glory of Jesus. The titles of glory that John applies to Jesus here are going to be titles that he's going to use throughout his Gospel. And the first one I want us to focus on is the one that is proclaimed by the prophet John the Baptist. So not the writer of the Gospel. This is a different John. As we start off in verse 19, we see this is the testimony of John. The prophet John. Or as the other Gospels call him, John the Baptist. He is... He is testifying to something. And what is it? Well, we see that He is not testifying that He's the Christ. But rather, He is this voice crying out in the wilderness, pointing them to someone else. And when we come to verse 29, we see who He is pointing to. It says, The next day the prophet John saw Jesus coming towards Him, and He declared, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world this first title of glory that John the author applies to Jesus Christ is the lamb of God and there's many connections to this in the old testament as the author John is writing specifically to a Jewish audience who would have understood the old testament this phraseology lamb of God would have popped out to them As we looked in Genesis, we saw in Genesis 4 that Abel makes a sacrifice, an atoning sacrifice to God. It is a lamb that he slays and lays before God. It is is meant to bring to mind Genesis chapter 22, where God comes to Abraham and calls him to sacrifice his only son Isaac. Abraham rises early and takes his son, and takes the wood, takes everything that's needed for the sacrifice except the lamb. And He takes him to the place where they're going to sacrifice. And we even read there that Isaac asks, where is the sacrifice? Abraham, obedience to God, binds his son and places him on the altar takes the knife, raises it, ready to bring it down on his son. And he stopped. And there, caught in the thicket, of his ram, we're told God provided a sacrifice in place of the son Isaac. It's meant to bring this to mind. The Lamb of God provided by God as a sacrifice. It's meant to bring Exodus 12 to mind. The Passover. As the people were slaves in Egypt, and God sent the plagues to Egypt, Pharaoh's heart yet was hardened and would not release them till it came to the final plague. This plague of death was going to come to all the firstborn in Egypt. Yet God's people who trusted Him were told to take a lamb and sacrifice that lamb and paint the blood on the doorpost of their house. And the death angel would pass by them and the firstborn would be safe. And they did. Those who trusted, those who believed, and and throughout the rest of the Old Testament we read about the the practice of the Passover, the celebration of the Passover that God passed over them because of their trust in in the Lamb that was provided, that took the place of the firstborn. And so, when the prophet John here declares, behold the Lamb of God, all that Old Testament connection is meant to run into our mind. This is the one that God has provided as His sacrifice for us. In fact, he goes on to describe the actions of glory associated with Jesus as the Lamb of God. What does it say? Who takes away the sins of the world. This is the One. This is the One on whom our penalty and punishment for our sin is going to be placed. We know we've read, Jesus will hang on a cross and die. But in doing so, our sin and the penalty of that is placed upon Him. And He takes it. He bears the wrath of God. He is the one who takes away the sin of the world. Amazingly glorious. But not only that, We read in verse 34, Jesus is described here by, again, John the prophet, I have seen, have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Now, in order to really understand the glory associated with this title, we have to understand the idea of sonship within Jewish culture if we just connect it to a father and son relationship, your father in that culture ultimately determined your identity. He ultimately determined your training. He ultimately determined your vocation. He he generated you. He brought you forth not only biologically, but also functionally. See, in today's day and age, you don't have to follow your father's vocation. We have a limitless opportunity to explore education and, and to be able to, to get a different job. But in this day, probably what I read was around 90% of sons ended up doing whatever their father did. Today it's like maybe 5%. So your Father was your identity, and and what He did became what you did. In fact, what do we read about Jesus? Jesus was the son of a carpenter. But not only that, we're told in one passage, He was called Jesus the carpenter. Like, His vocation was what His Father's vocation was. I mean, that was a way of understanding sonship. But there is a connection beyond that. Sometimes, sometimes this phrase, son of something, was used not of something that you were connected with biologically, but something that truly identified you. Um, in Scripture, there's a phrase that's sometimes used the son of Belial or the son of wickedness or evil or Satan. It's not that they were necessarily biologically generated from that. But that's what identifies them. And so when we read this, they're not just, it's not just saying, well, he is the son different from God. Like my son is different from me. They're saying this is, Jesus is the son whose identity is God. That's what's being said here. Jesus whose identity is God. God. It's what's going on in 2 Samuel 7, verses 12 through 14, where we read about David's son who had come to, to, to be a ruler and king. And in, in, in one sense, it's referring to Solomon, but then it talks about this son being God's son. It's messianic, it's the son of God himself, it's prophetic, talking about who, the one who would come. From, from Genesis chapter three and verse uh, 15 and so on, this promise, "The seed would come, the son would come. It was the son of Adam, it was the son of Abraham, it was the son of David, this one who would come and save his people from their sins. But what we find that this son is not just the son of humanity, but he himself is God. That is his identity. Truly God. Truly man. In turn, it is the very phrase that Nathanael uses in verse 49. Rabbi, you are the Son of God. Why does, why does John the Baptist, John the Prophet, declare him to be his identity to be God? Why does Nathanael declare his identity to be God? Well, with John the Baptist, he saw the Spirit descend like a dove and remain upon him. What we're not told here in John, but we're told in the other gospels that describe this is that God the Father speaks and says, This is my. Son. He is the one, what does it say here? Who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. Who will give His people God indwelling in them. Who can do that? But God. So these actions of glory associated with Jesus Christ. The Spirit of God is saying, now I've... I've been blessed to do a number of baptisms here at our church. But never have I seen heaven open. Never have I seen the Spirit descend. One of the most wonderful and amazing events was to be able to baptize my kids, but that didn't happen. This is what happens though when the Son of God comes. He is the one upon whom the Spirit descends. He is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. Not only that, when it comes to Nathaniel, why does Nathaniel use a phrase like this, the Son of God, identifying him as God, is because Jesus is omniscient. Here's Nathaniel sitting under a fig tree earlier in the day before he meets Jesus. Jesus is not around, he's not hiding behind a bush, observing Nathaniel. He's doing other things, we're told. He's with other people. Yet. When Nathanael comes face to face with Jesus, Jesus says, I saw you when you were under the fig tree. I saw you there. And Nathanael, you're God. Who else? Who else is omniscient? Who else could do such a thing not only that, Nathaniel here describes Him with another title of glory. You are the King of Israel. Now there have been many kings of Israel. But that's not what He's saying here. You are one of the kings of Israel. You're a king of Israel. No, you are the king. See, the Davidic covenant was given to proclaim that a seed of David would sit on the throne. But there's a key word forever. He would sit on the throne forever. In fact, back in that 2 Samuel 7 passage that talks about David's son and then begins to talk about God's son, that's what is said there. That this son of David, who would be God's son, would sit on the throne forever. Now, as we read through the Old Testament, we read through 1 and 2 Chronicles, First and 2 Kings, as you maybe read through you know, 2 Samuel, like I, I don't know about you, but when I read it, all the kings die. Like sometimes by their own sons, family members, whatever, they all die. This is not the promised one, and this is not the promised one, and this is not the promised one, and this is not the promise because they all die, and they don't come back to life. what we'll find in John's Gospel is that while Jesus does die to take the sins of the world, He does not stay dead. He is the King who will rule forever. He is the King of Israel. We have have this helpful little phrase that's given here. Philip wisely says, In verse 45, we have found Him of whom Moses in the law and also in the prophets wrote. All pointing to the Messiah. The Christ. The One who was prophesied. The One who fulfills all that was given by God. Jesus Christ. Jesus of Nazareth. One other title is given here at the very end and this is one that's actually used by jesus himself of himself as he's talking to nathaniel he says in verse 51 truly truly i say to you that truly truly is important it's it's significant he's saying this is really important i'm going to repeat my this word twice because this is really important truly truly this is sure this is This is firm. You can base your life on this. I say to you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Here Jesus uses the term Son of Man. It's found in Daniel's vision in Daniel chapter 7 verses 13 and 14 where Daniel describes one like the Son of Man who comes and And the emphasis is that this person is human and yet much more than human. Truly a human representative that is truly also divine and will one day judge all humanity. And Jesus takes on this name for Himself. He uses it throughout. It's one of the most common names or titles He uses of Himself. He is the the Son of Man. And it's interesting where he puts this into kind of this storyline. This idea of the angels ascending and descending comes from, uh, from Jacob. Jacob's ladder. Where Jacob is sleeping and he sees this vision of angels ascending and descending on the ladder and he names that place Bethel because God is there. And here the ladder is Absent. The Son of Man has taken its place. Here what we're told is that Jesus is the mediator between heaven and earth. Jesus is the One who stands between God and man. The Son of Man who is human, but much more than human. Who is truly able to represent humanity, yet also truly divine this Son of Man will stand between heaven and earth. Here we see John describing Jesus in His glory. If we have eyes to see, ears to hear, the Lamb of God who will take away our sins, the Son of God who is God Himself, fulfilling the promises of the Messiah, The King of Israel, who will sit on the throne forever, in whose kingdom we can serve. The Son of Man, who mediates between God and man, between heaven and earth. This is the glorious Jesus, whom we worship. This is who we're meant to see throughout the gospel. John's representation of Jesus is not just a nice guy. Not just a wise teacher. But God Himself who became truly man so that He might reveal to us God. So that we might see the glory of Glory as of the only Son from the Father full of grace and truth. Which leads me to my second point. Seeing ourselves in light of Jesus' glory. I think we find here wonderful examples of how we are meant to respond. We are meant to respond humbly. Humility is humanity's right view of self. I like... Uh, Wilhelmus Brackel's definition: A Dutch reformer. He wrote, "Humility is having a correct judgment concerning himself, whereby he neither elevates himself above his condition, nor wishes to be elevated by others, as such. Not to be." Elevating ourselves above our condition, nor wishing to be elevated by others as such. And humility is what leads humanity to see themselves as God's servant. And so, let us look at a few examples here. First, I want us to look at John the prophet's example of humility. First of all, John humbly commits to his ministry. As they come in verse 19 to ask Him who He is, He willingly, He confessed. Does not deny it, but confessed. It's like emphatic. Like John the prophet was emphatic. I am not the Christ. They ask what then? Are you Elijah? Are you the prophet? No. Here's the humility of John the prophet. I am just a voice. I am just a voice that's trying to point you to the way of the Lord. That's all I am. This is hard humility. To say, I am serving, but I am not the one. I am expendable. I am merely a voice. Jesus is the substance. I'm just the one pointing you to Him. That's all I am. Not only that, he had a humble evaluation of his ministry. Notice when they begin to ask him why he is baptizing, basically they're saying, What gives you the authority to do this? Now, the baptism at this time was normally proselytes, non Jewish people coming to Judaism would take the sign of baptism to demonstrate the cleansing of themselves. But what we have here is John is actually baptizing Jews. He's calling them to come and proclaim uh, themselves as trusting in the promise of God in the hope of cleansing of the Messiah. He's pointing them to what God had promised. as the last prophet of the Old Testament pointing them to what is to come. Notice He says, I baptize with water, He says. It's just a symbol. It's just a sign. But Jesus... Jesus will baptize with the Holy Spirit. Jesus is the true holiness. The true cleanliness. Jesus is the one who brings true change. Who brings new birth. John is willing to evaluate his ministry humbly. My baptism, just a sign. Again, hard humility. To say that while... My efforts are important. They are not sufficient. They are not effective without the work of Jesus Christ. Any of us should be saying that in our ministry. Whether it be in our home, to our kids, whether it be to our neighbors, to our friends, we have an important job to be that voice and declare the Gospel of Jesus Christ But we are not sufficient. We cannot save anyone. We are not effective unless Jesus works. We are looking to Him. We seek to share the Gospel to convince people. Yet our efforts will be in vain without the work of God. Not only that, we see... John's humble release of his ministry. In verse 29, as he declares, Behold the Lamb of God. Again, it happens in verse 35 or 36, behold the Lamb of God. Notice what happens, verse 37. And two of his disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. They were John's disciples. They were following John and what John had to teach. And all of a sudden, they leave John and follow Jesus. Jesus Christ. What do we find? From John, we, we see nothing. He doesn't say here that he had a problem with that, or he discouraged them from doing that at all. Rather, it seems to be he's the one pushing him, them towards it. He's the one proclaiming, this is the one we've been waiting for. In essence, he's saying, my disciples are not really my followers, but followers of Jesus Christ. Paul, like Paul says, "Be imitators of me as I imitate Christ. When I'm not imitating Christ, don't imitate me. Because <laughs> you're not ultimately, my follower, you're his. This, as well as hard humility, releasing your investment to do the bidding of Jesus, not your own. Those you disciple your kids who you raise and share Christ with them, they may stay or they may leave. As long as they stay or go by following Jesus, we can rejoice. That is our hope. Not that they would somehow be attached to me, but that they would be attached to Jesus. John is such a great example of humility to us here who is willing to say, I do not serve myself. I do not proclaim myself. But I am a servant of God and I proclaim Jesus Christ. Disciples are an example of humility as well. Here we see their humble submission their willingness to follow Jesus and learn from Him. We see this in these two disciples of John who follow after Him. And when they come to Him, Jesus turns and says, what are you seeking? I don't know if He said it quite that emphatically. What in the world are you guys doing? Follow me around. And they say to Him, Rabbi, teacher. They're willing to place themselves under his teaching and under his authority. As Carson writes, the word literally means my great one. It was a common term of honor addressed by a student to his master, to his teacher. So they desired to learn from Jesus. They placed themselves underneath his care. As we're told here they stayed the day with Jesus. When we come to verse 43, and Jesus finds Philip. He says, Follow me. And what's Philip's response? He did. He follows Jesus. We see their humble submission, but we also see how that leads to a humble mission. That in turn, what do they do? What does Andrew do? What does Philip do? They found Jesus. He's their teacher. They're submitting to him. And what do they do? Well, Andrew goes and tells Simon, I have a brother. I love my brother. I want him to know that we found the Messiah. I'm going to go tell him. That's what comes from it. Andrew didn't go and say, we're big shots. We found the Messiah. We're awesome. You should come hang out with me more often, bro. No, he's like, you need to go see Jesus. You need to go see Him. Philip, we found Him. Oh, can anything good come out of the Nazareth? his brother says? Anything? What does Philip said? Just come and see. not about what I'm telling you. You need to come and meet Jesus. Jesus is the one it's all about. Our responsibility is to share what we learn with others, especially those close to us. And sometimes that can be humbling because finding Jesus is not about us. It's about Jesus. Telling people about Jesus is not about us. It's about Jesus. It's about going to them and saying, come and see the glory of Jesus. I'm, I'm nothing. You need to see Jesus. I'm only what I am today. Be, the, the goodness that is in me is because of Jesus. So you need to come to Jesus. That's what we need to tell our friends and our family and our neighbors. And then when they come, there's this humble response. Our own way must be given up to embrace Jesus. That can be difficult. Embracing Jesus means that Jesus' truth comes before our truth. Jesus' way comes before our way. Nathaniel is a good example of this. He is seriously skeptical of a Messiah coming from Nazareth. I don't know all the information Nathaniel knew about Nazareth, but from reading the Bible, Nazareth was not necessarily considered the greatest of places. And so maybe there's some validity in his skepticism here. Yet when his skepticism is confronted by Jesus, Jesus is proven true. Because Jesus... Jesus, He does not have anything to fear from our skepticism. Nothing. He overcomes it. We are meant to embrace Him. He is able to answer all our questions. He is able to assuage all our fears when we truly come to see Jesus. And just as they have given us examples of responding with humility, we too are to respond to Jesus with humility. To believe Jesus, to trust Jesus, to have faith in Jesus necessitates our humility. We understand who Jesus is. It means we understand how different He is from us. We understand how glorious He is Above us. We see His place. Not only just above us, but above all things. And our place is below. We affirm that only Jesus can save us then from the punishment of our sin. That ultimately, we are not able. We don't have the power Jesus has. We don't have the glory Jesus has. Jesus is the Lamb that takes away the sins of the world. We cannot even deal with our own sin. We lack the power. We lack the authority. We lack the ability. But Jesus is the glorious God. The truly God who has become truly man to redeem us from the punishment of our sin, to save us from eternal damnation. And so we are meant to humbly submit to Jesus as Savior and God, we are meant to hear Him say, follow me. Or as He said to those two disciples when they asked where, there's, where He's staying, come and see. Come and see me. Turn and follow me. We are meant to humbly, humbly embrace Jesus. And we're meant to humbly share Jesus with others. He is our only hope. He is the only hope of our family, of our friends as well. So therefore, we want to share Jesus with them. And what does our humility lead us to? Greater visions of the glory of Jesus. I actually love the end of this chapter. I don't think Jesus here is trying to condemn Nathaniel for how Nathaniel comes to believe. There's skepticism in all of us. There are questions that we all ask about Jesus. But notice what Jesus says. Jesus answers him, "Because you said to me, I, or because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree. Do you believe? You will see greater things than these. It's not a condemnation." It's a promise. As as we see the glimpse of the glory of Jesus Christ and we say, yes, that's Him! Jesus says, just wait. There's more to come. There's more to see. If Jesus was not omniscient, then how could we say He was God? And yet now as we are confronted with this text of Jesus' omniscience, this historical account, Nathanael's experience recorded by the author John, it's meant to call us to believe that Jesus is who He says He is. It's meant to say, skeptic and unbeliever, Come. Come and believe. And in humbly believing in the glory of Jesus as God, we are promised to see the greater glory in the future. And in fact, it's interesting. It's hard to see in English because we don't have a plural for you. Maybe it should say, truly, truly, I say to you guys, you all, something to that effect. It's a plural. It's not just a promise for Nathaniel. actually. It's a promise for all the disciples. It's a promise for us as well. You will see greater glory. Now to them, He's saying, you will see greater glory in my life. Jesus will be confirmed over and over again as the new Israel that's paralleled here with Jacob who is the old Israel, the promised Messiah, the One who they've been waiting for. And we too can see it as we work through this Gospel. As we read it. As we study it. We too can see uh, Jesus continuing to be confirmed over and over again. But more than that, Nathanael and the other disciples saw, past tense, a greater glory at His death. At their deaths. All who believe and look forward to an eternity of glory awaiting us. C.S. Lewis described heaven in one of his books as being a place where one can go further up and further in. There's always more. There's always further to go. And it truly is. For in heaven we will continue for an eternity to be amazed by our infinite God. That there is so much glory that awaits to be revealed to us, we cannot even fathom it. All so let us humbly embrace the infinite glory of Jesus, because our finite glory does not even compare. Let us humble ourselves and share in the glory of Jesus Christ. What should we know? In our application here, Jesus is glorious. Infinitely glorious. Only He is the Lamb of God, the Son of God, the Messiah, the true eternal King of Israel, and the Son of Man. Only He. So what should we do? How should we walk? We are all meant to humbly embrace Jesus as the glorious God and Savior. We are all meant to humbly proclaim to share Jesus as the glorious God and Savior. Let us pray. Father, we thank You so much for this text and how it proclaims to us Jesus Christ. How we are meant to respond. O Lord, may we be willing to humbly embrace the glory of Jesus Christ. For in Him we find our only hope in life and death. May He be exalted. Lord, if there is anyone here today who has not yet believed in Him, trusted Him as Savior and Lord, that they would turn from their sins to Him. As our text says, as Andrew proclaimed to Simon as Philip proclaimed to Nathaniel, come and see Jesus. Jesus is here to be seen. Here to be embraced. And Lord, I ask that You would move people's hearts to embrace Him this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.